Hello, I'm Jamie Sanchez, and I'm here to explain Cowboy Bebop for your benefit. I'm Lauren Fates, and I once constructed the sleeves of Faye Valentine's ball gown, and then gave up. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. Listeners, welcome back to the Bebop Beat. We have a jam-packed episode for you today. We're speaking with Wendy Lee, voice artist, who has voiced Faye Valentine. So stay tuned for that interview towards the end of this episode. In the meantime, uh, I had kind of a crappy weekend, Lauren. I know. I got the uh, unfortunate pleasure of witnessing some of it. Obviously, this is weeks in the past for our listeners, but the Saturday of our last production meeting, we had just a prolific amount of rain hit the city of Chicago all at once. I had a little bit of flooding. Jamie was definitely worse for the wear. So as I was speaking to Lauren, we were, you know, strategizing for this conversation we're having with our guests this episode. And I looked to my right and my entire office window has become a waterfall. I panicked, tell Lauren, I'll be right back. I was not right back. It didn't happen. In that moment, we also got a tornado warning, like, go to your basement while all of this stuff by my window is being damaged. And I have to say, I lost some pretty spectacular things. I know. I know you specifically lost some Bebop prints, a pretty famous series that you can no longer buy by Omocat. Yeah, that one hurt. I believe I bought all six. That was like a special at the time. You could buy all six posters at once. Uh, But to my credit, the posters were huge and I never found a good spot for them in my house. So I think this was the universe telling me, hey, just let them go. Just be free now. (laughs) And I had to dump them into the recycle. When we were talking about this off mic, I was saying, I think a lot of us anime fans, us like con-going geek types who go to artist alleys, we do just have a pile of stuff that we don't know where to hang it. I have a large amount of She-Ra goods from when I had the She-Ra podcast, including some beautiful pencil drawings from their overseas animation house. And I feel like it's just a time bomb until something happens. So you have to put them up on the wall or accept that someday the flood may take them and make the decision for you. (laughs) And then there are those prints that you thought at the time they were a really good purchase because, you know, they got some like spicy bits to them. And then you think to yourself as you're older, why am I going to hang this in my dining room and eat dinner next to it? Yeah, I I have a couple of prints that there I mean th- nothing is nothing is 18 plus, right? Like nothing is X rated. Why not? <laughs> I'm not no, I mean I'm not going to yuck your yum, right? I would I would buy stuff like that if I saw some that I enjoyed. It's great that that exists and I'm so excited for the people making livings off of it. People often forget the amount of real estate in their closets. I encourage all of our listeners, take your spicy Cowboy Bebop fan art pieces and just make a shrine in your closet. It's very liberating. I'm not speaking out of experience here. No way. No, not at all. I haven't seen those pictures of Vicious that you have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we got to laugh a little bit because listener at home, this episode, Speak Like a Child, made me cry. I'm not afraid to say... As a grown adult, 
I wept watching anime this week, and I think it shows, A, how this show hits different when you are an adult, and B, how maybe sometimes I'm just a bit of an airhead, because when I tell you why I was crying, it may be just because I missed a completely ham-fisted part of the script the last couple of times I watched this, so stay tuned for that. That being said, Speak Like a Child does start out as essentially a comedy plot, and 95% of it remains a comedy plot, and then they just stab those feels into you right near the end and twist a little bit, and just like, you feeling them yet? Yeah, I put in my notes that it is a Faye episode. I really was gunning to get Wendy Lee on this episode because it is such a formative Faye moment, but she's not in it a lot, at least not in a meaningful way, until the very conclusion. We see Faye betting on horse races. And there's this beautiful operatic voice singing. It's very stirring. And then you tune in and you realize it's a version of the song Adieu, the famous cowboy bebop track. They just did it in a different style. And I thought that was very clever. But again, sort of comedic imagery, haunting melody. That's the balance we get this whole time. Jet, Ed, and Spike are on the deck of the Bebop. Spike is trying to capture, I presume, lunch because they're broke again and they still have no food or treasure on the ship. What have you guys been up to lately? How come you're off your bounty hunting game? We learn about a story through Jet who's telling Ed about this famous Japanese folktale called Arishima Taro, which features an item called the Tamate Bako. Tamate Bako itself is translated as jewel handbox, and it's sometimes translated as casket, which really does set the tone for this entire episode, which is both treasure hunt and time capsule. So everyone's hanging out. Uh, I note that Ayn is spluted in corgi fashion while Spike is fishing, and a drone comes with a package delivery. This is something that at the time really felt like science fiction, but is apparently something Amazon in our present time is experimenting with, drone delivery. So who knew? I guess Cowboy Bebop had their thumb on that pulse. A package is delivered. And Jamie, is this where the inspiration came from for your PS2 box? It is. Yeah. So if you look at the screenshots from this episode you'll see that the coloring is very similar to that of the PS2 box set. So there's splashes of orange and red and this kind of like packaging tape around it. Unfortunately, they don't add a ton of detail about, say, all of the forwarding addresses onto the box detail, but it really does encapsulate the feeling that this thing's been passed around the solar system. Yes, this box, we learn, has gone through a nonprofit convent, an actor's studio, a news network all over the solar system. Faye doesn't want to pay the 6,300 wulongs it takes to receive the letter, and she leaves. We get the impression very quickly, though, that it's not just the price tag on the mail that is causing her to flee, but perhaps just a general fear of being found. She's wondering if it's a collection agency and she's immediately ready to disappear. This scene can be interpreted as comedic, but I do think it really shows us the trauma that is just slightly under her skin, ready to 
trigger again at any given time. She could just be hanging out, sipping a fast food soda, thinking about the ponies, and then her past catches up to her. So as the crew considers how to get rid of it, Spike just opens it. And that's kind of where Spike's at this whole episode. Yeah, he does a real damage streak here in this entire episode because he's opening this package. He opens another one later. He wrecks this poor guy's shop, which we'll get into in a little bit. And he states, my ship works better when I kick it. And just, Spike, where are you today? Your head's in the clouds, man. (laughs) It is kind of a world-building thing that they do through Spike, though, because when they have the beta tape in their hands, Spike starts ripping the tape out. And of course, here, as someone who grew up in the 90s, I was like, oh, God, no, why are you doing that? But it shows that this is truly antique, obsolete tech that they just, by looking at it, have no idea what it could possibly be for. And again, here in 2021, I can totally see that happening. Like, why would any kid born today ever have any idea what that rectangle is if it were handed to them cold? Well, there's something endearing about Jet and Spike having their hands on a package that was explicitly meant for Faye, right? We don't know much about her. Spike has backstory on her and knows that she is unaware of her past through the episode with Whitney. And Jet's just gunning to get his money back from this COD. He decides to sell the tape. Perhaps it has some kind of value. And they meet the only new character in this episode, the video maniac. Now, for our audience who's maybe a little less familiar with anime background of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, this is a very clear jab at anime fans in Japan at the time. Sunrise is having a little fun here because they are portraying what is known as the stereotypical otaku. Otaku is a word first coined in the 1970s to categorize a group of antisocial loners. This character asks a question, Beta? Never heard of it? I'll explain it for your benefit. And that kind of summarizes the energy at which otaku kind of inhabit, so to speak. And if you're looking to learn more about this classification of nerds that is the predecessor to modern nerd fandom right now, you can check out a book by Hiroki Azuma, which is called Otaku, Japan's Database Animals. In the synopsis, we're told that the author traces otaku's ascendancy to the distorted conditions created in Japan by the country's phenomenal post-war modernization, its inability to come to terms with its defeat in the Second World War, and America's subsequent cultural invasion. And wow, that's a real poignant analogy here for this episode, which is essentially this exploration through the 90s, through the lens of a teenager, through the lens of this otaku, and through video recording that was very popular in the 90s itself. Yeah, when we meet this character, he is watching like a very 90s sitcom. Even though you only see a couple moments, you get this glimpse that it's like, twin siblings tossed together in a new home like will they still get along when they have to face the challenges of moving like it's just very like full house or family matters plot you're right it is very 90s i also looked at the credits that were briefly visible during that parody sitcom i unfortunately didn't find anything that interesting 
I keep waiting to find Easter eggs. You got one. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So the Cowboy Bebop wiki, and I remember this from decades prior, too, but this is a reference or homage to Beverly Hills 90210, Jason Priestley and Shannon Doherty. Oh, the misspellings really misled me. I keep I keep wanting it to be like a real name of a real person on a Bebop crew, but it's just all parody, and that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It goes hand in hand with this entire episode being a love letter to analog media. You can tell this show and its creators and everyone who's worked on its production and its distribution have a really profound love for the analog medium, right? Like a lot of the bebop paraphernalia that comes out are references to, say, vinyl art, like when we have vinyl records. Uh, I believe one of the DVD box sets here in the West The DVDs themselves look like mini vinyls, and the Japanese DVD release, the box set there, is this beautiful item that is shaped like a cake box. And when you open the cake box, you see that each disc is enveloped in a very specific analog medium, such as a PS2 box, or a film cassette or enclosure, or um, one of the DVDs themselves is Ed made a mix CD for the Bebop crew. It's really adorable. And so to see this kind of homage in this episode also partnered with the box set efforts to make things feel real and tangible and kind of loved like it was in the 80s and 90s just really speaks to me as both a designer and someone who appreciates packaging design. What's extra charming about all of that to me is that our main characters could not care less. I tracked this watch through that the video store guy absolutely explained the difference between VHS and beta and had Spike and Jet bothered to listen or value this information, the punchline of this episode would never have happened and it would have saved them a lot of strife. But Spike is like breaking a knob off of a radio or something next to him and is just not respecting this poor guy's passion. To be fair, he's a little unapproachable. (laughs) I I sometimes feel like him. I understand his plight. (laughs) I hope I'm a little bit more charismatic than that, though. Before we get too far into the episode, there is another scene right around this time where... Jet is lovingly trying to repair the tape, and he has like a a washcloth and a really aesthetically pleasing, almost femme, like old timey looking iron, and he's trying to iron out the tape. And I have this entire like headcanon now that amongst the junk in the back of the bebop in the rooms that they hardly ever check, there's just stuff including this like vintage iron. And today, Jet got to use it. Thank goodness he saved that. Is Jet a hoarder now? Is that what we're portraying him as? (laughs) I don't know about hoarder, but I think it's a dad thing, right? Like I, my dad is by no means a hoarder, but he does have just a garage full of like drawers of components for like, maybe you'll need a screw this size someday, or maybe a door hinge this size. And I feel like it's the equivalent of that. Like, we're out in the middle of space. You never know. And you might need an iron. We're not going to throw that away. 
That tracks. I can agree with that. Sometimes he reminds me of Old Man Yells at Cloud, in particular the scene where he's yelling at Faye as she runs off in the red tail. She can't hear you, dude. That thing is entirely enclosed so she can survive space. But nonetheless, he pays her COD. He doesn't have to. He could just deny this thing, and he he claims that he will go and get his money back. But now somehow he's compelled to figure out what's on this tape. He says, quote, I'm going to find out what's on this tape if it kills me. And damn, it just might. Yeah, I put in my notes just why are they doing this? I don't think the first time the tape clicks on, they have any understanding that it's Faye because the tape is kind of garbled and her face is blurred out. Spike definitely kicks the equipment until it's broken, which results in a really funny and angry phone call from the video store guy, like demanding compensation. But Jet seems kind of vengeful in return, right? Like, you ruined my tape. I'm gonna, you, you owe me money for that. But once we see the literal depths to which these guys are willing to go, I'm not sure I still understand why this quest is important or why they see it through. Part of that is the analogy they're weaving through this episode with the Tama Tebako. Another fun fact is that the prefix Tama can mean jewel or soul. And it's also frequently referenced in anime such as One Piece and Fairy Tale as this MacGuffin, something that compels people forward because it is this priceless treasure. It can be often compared to Pandora's box, so to speak. I think there's just a a sense of curiousness and adventure in him and stubbornness now, (laughs) and he's got to see what's in it. Yeah, and I guess there is a chance this tape is worth something. We saw the glimmer in the otaku's eye as he saw this tape, and maybe, just maybe, if they could figure out its contents, there's there's money in it for them. It's almost like this is a bounty, this episode that they're chasing, which I guess I can understand. Ed is able to find where a beta player might be. It's at a museum in Japan specifically in Tokyo, in Akihabara, in a place called the Sonora Building. It's an electric museum. And other things in this building include a beauty salon, a photo studio, women's wear, housewares, and an electronics company that owns several floors. There's also a science museum. As a former science museum employee, I dig that. So they're in this museum. And it's a total death trap, right? Why do you do this? Why are you climbing through elevator shafts where the elevator is going to fall on you? Why are you drowning yourself in air ducts that are filled like halfway or three quarters of the way full of water and just descending into this underground abyss to find essentially ancient technology to rewatch what's on this tape? Seems like a lot of effort to me, given how disinterested they're in in about Faye's life or, you know, maybe there's money in it. But not only did they get to the dark abyss, they also had to pay for gate travel and for fuel to Earth. And they still cannot feed themselves. One interesting thing from the video game that I'm not sure we ever got to mention on the video game episode 
was that it was implied in that story that the Bebop crew spends a lot more money than other bounty hunters. There's like a gang in the PS2 game and they were talking about how this one bounty could fund their entire organization for a month. And Faye makes fun of them for being like frugal and having a budget. And I wish that were more present in this show. Because if that's canon, I think it adds a real layer to like why they're constantly in dire straits. They're actually maybe more in control of this than we realize, but people like Faye are throwing it at dog races instead. Or Spike's just fucking everything up in his vicinity to capture all the bounties, and he owes lots of places lots of money. At least they wore gloves as they descended. I feel like maybe a mask would have been good, or some knee pads or something, but they do wear gloves. And also, a shout out to the egg and eye, the kind of bongo-heavy groove playing during this montage. I really appreciate this museum descent series of scenes. It reminded me a lot of Bohemian Rhapsody, where they just spent a lot of time showing us the world. I think it is so great that Cowboy Bebop takes room to breathe and just show us different rooms, different vignettes. Some things can be experienced in this show without dialogue, And this is one of those moments where just every little spot they walk through or climb through or fall through gives us a more physical sense of relatability to what they're going through. Even though nobody ever really says, gosh, this sure was hard. We've climbed 20 floors. Shout out to main writer of this episode, Akihiro Inari, who's known for Escaflone and City Hunter, and two co-writers, Shoji Kawamori who's a prolific writer in the anime sphere, primarily known for Macross, but also Eureka 7 and Escaflone, and Aya Yoshinaga, another co-writer who is also known for one title I absolutely adore, Natsume's Book of Friends. Speaking of show notes, Speak Like a Child is, of course, another one of our music references. This is an album by American jazz pianist Herbie Hancock. It was released by Blue Note Records, so there's our reference to Blue again that keeps coming back throughout Bebop. Very cool. But it was in the late 60s, in 1968, so the title, in terms of musical reference, does not match the 90s nostalgia. So Spike and Jet are traversing this abyss with a soul cigarette lighter. (laughs) Why would you do that? They get to the floor where the tape decks are all housed. They're somehow miraculously still in one piece. Look around and say, which one is it? They grab the biggest one, but they package it up and reascend the many floors, get back on the bebop, travel back through hyperspace, and return to Mars where they started. I do want to note that they left Faye there. They actually, like made her sleep in the bed she metaphorically made, right? Like, she ran away, and at this point, she always expects the Bebop to, if not come looking for her, then at least wait for her. And they super didn't. They went to Earth. So there's this conversation that Faye has with Ed. Number one, Ed's like, oh yeah, someone was looking for you. He was saying, tape, pay me, munch, munch, grind, grind. Was she just talking about Jet or was she making up a story? 
I always thought she was just making something up, but I think she's referring to Jet. I think there are two people who qualify as this person. One Jet, yes, correct. But also the otaku guy who's on the video call. Oh, yeah. Everyone is saying, pay me, give me tape, munch, munch, grind, grind. You're right. (laughs) But uh, Faye gets the incorrect impression, hearing the boys are sad, that they're maybe longing for her. And as we've established on this show before, I think we're in agreement that that's the reality Faye wishes were true. She's sort of projecting and is like, oh, those men, they can't do anything without me. They're fighting over me. They miss me. And just because she wants to believe that, she super does and goes back to the bebop, even though I don't think there's any sign this episode that Jet or Spike are even thinking about her. No, none at all. (laughs) <laughs> They're so involved with the Tamate Bako, so to speak, that, you know, Faye's just a passing thought or just another annoyance. We do get another visit from a different drone. We have Rabbit Express this time. If you had been paying attention, you would have noticed that Turtle Express had beaten Rabbit Express to the punchline. <laughs> the tortoise and hare, good, good bit. But instead of 3600 for the tape that was COD, they are now on the hook for 25200 for the deck. And geez, Jet's just forking over money they don't have. I don't know how he's paying for all of this. He doesn't seem to know either, but I think he kind of hopes Faye will pay it. And even if she doesn't, he wants to see what's on that tape. And I think there's some gratification that they get from at least attempting to exclude her from the viewing. Before we get to that, though, just a couple more tidbits, because that's definitely the climax of the episode and will take us into our guest. Some other lore things. Apparently, current society in this show uses discs. Uh, When they're talking about VHS and beta, The otaku references like, of course, with the discs we use today, you'd never imagine tape. So our glamorous future is like CDs. (laughs) (laughs) Been there, done that. (laughs) I also took note of a shot they occasionally show us of the Earth that just has debris all around it in orbit, all around the atmosphere. I think that's very haunting. We kind of already know why it's like that, but not the full extent. Like, we haven't seen Faye's sort of uh, point of view in the accident or our different characters' experiences with the Earth's fate. But I I reference Adventure Time on this podcast every now and then. And Adventure Time is one of my favorite cartoons of all time because of its slow burn. Even though on the surface, it's a happy kids show about a boy and his dog going on adventures, there are these little hints around the edges that we're in a post-apocalypse. And at one point, there is a fable or grable teller who just has a globe in the background of his set, and the globe has this huge chunk blown out of it, like some terrible explosion happened to the Earth. And that is a trope that we also see here in Cowboy Bebop. Just the ruined earth that is not actively a part of what we're talking about right now. We're talking a little bit more about lore. I did want to readdress how far this tape has traveled from its original departure from what we presume is Singapore to just around the solar system. You mentioned a couple of locations. 
Uh, what I caught was Europa Charitable Cloister, Pluto Penitentiary, or Prison Pluto as it's written, um, which we have visited before a couple times. Uh, later on, we're here about Venus Action News Network. But then we get two more snippets. Asteroid B Actor Studio. So I presume there's an asteroid named B somewhere. And the Uranus Observatory Number 9, or as it's written, the Fourth Observatory of Uranus. And that adds just a little bit more character, like you were saying before, where if we stop to pause and enjoy all of the, the decor or detail in the show, whether it's framed very slow in a pace where we're exploring an environment, or if we're just nitpicking the details, every little bit just adds on about how large the solar system is, how encompassing it is. And then we're told that data before 2022 is missing. And I think that's the first time we get this good perspective from Jet's point of view that Faye predates what he believes are actual ages. So the question that I'm going to ask, I thought had been answered, but now I'm not so sure. And that question is, who sent the tape? I, I thought it was pretty settled that Faye sent the tape to herself. The video, which we'll talk about in a second, explains that these kids were going to send messages to themselves 10 years in the future. So I can sort of see the idea that maybe she put it in the mail and then it bounced around forever until circling back to herself. But if that's true, I don't know why she would have mailed a whole tape player to herself. That doesn't make a lot of sense based on the fact that she could not have predicted her own future. She would just assume a tape deck was still available to her. So who do we think did this? In the video, they portray at least five friends, all dressed in school uniforms. I presume this is a group project in which they're all kind of recording their aspirations to their future selves. And perhaps it was one of those friends who finds out that, you know, Faye's been in an accident later on and knows that she's been cryogenically frozen, and who knows if there'll be tape players in the future. Now, as to all of these things successfully finding her in the year 2071, yeah, good luck. I appreciate <laughs> how neatly the story ties this up into this really precious bow. But I think from a sci-fi perspective, there is a lot of character there we can extrapolate. And I really appreciate this idea that someone cares for Faye so much that they would have that kind of foresight. So now that we have Theater Bebop up and running, Ed's putting cables into where they need to go, like, good on her, tech support, <laughs> AV nerd. Jet and Spike are both opening beers, and then there's just bowls of snacks on the side. <laughs> I really appreciated how they're just getting ready for a real 90s sit-down sitcom. I thought we didn't have any food. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Popcorn's still food. You know how cheap that is. I hope it's cheap in the future. Faye says that she is happy not watching it. And she's like, fine, whatever. And she goes to leave the room, but then cannot. Lauren, personal story. My grandfather was a big AV nerd and he had lots and lots of stuff. He was big into surround sound and like, really expensive TVs that he could get his hands on before they hit the market. He was very much an early adopter. So we had this closet in my house. I grew up with my grandparents for a time. And that closet was just AV recording studio. So you'd have the cassette to the cassette 
recorders, you'd have a bunch of monitors, and we'd have the video camera. And I, for sure, have recorded embarrassing shit like this. For sure, you do dumb things when you're on camera at that age. And this was such an endearing watch through for me because my previous watch throughs, I had forgotten that. And this time, it hit something different. I wouldn't even call phase recording dumb. I mean, we see the girl on the on the side who's like constantly doing peace signs and saluting and she doesn't know what to do with her hands. Like I relate to her, by the way, that's she's me 100 percent. But this is actually a very thoughtful and insightful thing to do, like make a time capsule for yourself. I when I was a kid with a tape deck, I thought myself a real comedian and used to record like talk shows and my guests included Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mr. Rogers. I did not have the the foresight to be like, I think as an adult, I'd like to have a conversation with myself right now. <laughs> I was not in that headspace. So Faye's a sappy teenager in this. She's the primary director or recorder and actress of this scene. And she's clearly embarrassed and self-conscious about this, but has the motivation and positivity to move forward and record this video to her future self. And she's not emo in the least. And that's when we realize this distinction between present day Faye, who's brash and irrational at times and abrasive to her comrades, actually has this deep down vulnerability. And this is a moment where we see those two Faye's connect with each other. Yeah, I was very taken this time by the fact that as a child, Faye was so shy. I got the impression that her setting the camera up in her room may have even been some sort of compromise she had made with her friends. Like, she couldn't do it with them in person when they were all together trying to shoot it together. And she was just like, guys, guys, don't worry. I'll just do it myself later. I'll do it myself later. And I was very touched by that as an adult, I have grown out of a lot of anxiety and a lot of stage fright. And I feel like myself at the same age probably would have begged for an out like that as well. So now I'll get into why I was a crying mess. I think I'm already sort of angling in that direction. When Faye ends her video, she does a cheer for herself. She takes out her pom-pom. She's got a little uniform on and she's saying, do your best me let's go me. And when she gets to don't lose me, for some reason, I always took that at face value before. You know, uh, do your best, win, let's go, don't lose. It's a sports cheer. It's actually like an extremely ham-fisted, heavy-handed line where past Faye is begging adult Faye, don't lose me don't lose me. And Faye gets tears in her eyes because she has lost herself. And Wendy Lee's line delivery where she says, I can't remember. The sub actually has a line after that where Faye asks herself, is this me? The dub doesn't have it. The dub just leaves it at, I don't remember. And then we just see Faye cry as the voice in the background says, don't lose me. And for some reason, 
the don't lose me thing. I just never got it before. Took three and a half decades, folks, of life until I was able to comprehend that level of dialogue nuance. And I ugly cried. I was like, no, you have to get her back. This is terrible. (laughs) That is so wholesome, Lauren. (laughs) Thank you for that confession. Yep, it is a confession. It's pretty embarrassing. I think where the episode really hits me in the feels and twists that knife is the moment where we realize the Bebop crew is opening the Tamate Bako. Shout out to jazzmez.com again for encapsulating the point of the fable, which is, quote, eventually in desperation and loneliness, he opens the Tamate Bako. Suddenly, he becomes an old man and dies of despair. And there's just that moment there where Faye is shedding another layer of her emotional armor. Is she dying of despair here inside? Is she becoming an old woman? She's here on the bebop to fight against that desperation and that loneliness. And she gets the camaraderie to watch this video among her her comrades, even though she's not welcome. And just much like the scene where Spike returns to the bebop after Gren's departure to Titan, I get those same feels. I get that same sadness for being alone in a crowd, but also having the support of people you might call family. Yeah, I don't think they support her at the beginning of this scene. I think it is very important and heartbreaking that they're watching this as sort of two separate parties. But Child Faye literally apologizes for causing trouble for people in the future. And she says that she doesn't mean to. And the animation does a very wise thing. And at this time shows the facial expressions of Jet and of Spike. I don't know if this crew ever gets to have a conversation about this in the future, but I wish they would because this is clearly striking at the depth of what makes Faye Faye. And maybe she would stick around a little bit more. Maybe she would stop preemptively running away if these people just sat down and had the conversation we'd like them to have about the fact that they, deep down somewhere, love and support each other. Space therapy! Everybody go! (laughs) Everybody get your space therapy! Well, that takes us to the end of Speak Like a Child, but really only the beginning of this podcast episode. When we were planning ahead who we wanted to get on each episode of Cowboy Bebop, this felt like a dream opportunity to talk to Faye Valentine herself, Wendy Lee. Wendy sat with us for a little bit over an hour from her home in LA, and we are really excited to share a lot of saucy and exciting inside takes about the character and Bebop. All right, Bounty Hunters, we are so honored today to have a huge guest with us in the house. We have the voice of not only Faye Valentine, but hundreds of other anime favorites. Please welcome voice artist Wendy Lee. Welcome, Wendy. Oh, hello. Hey, guys. Wendy, it is so awesome to meet you here in my adult life as a grown-up. 
early 2000s, like 2000 or 2001, I remember being at ASEN here in Chicago, Anime Central, and saw you at a table out in the tent and got to got to meet you. I was so excited. I'm a big fan. Uh, happy to finally get to talk to you a little bit longer than that. That's amazing. We, our paths have crossed decades ago. It's hard to believe. Yeah. I don't like to think about how long ago that was, but it was true. You are one of my one of my favorite talents and definitely my favorite voice actor on Bebop. But don't tell Bo because he was here before. <laughs> hey, got it. I got it. Well, Bo's one of my favorites on Bebop, too. So I understand. I, I can have some competition with him. <laughs> um, that's amazing. When you said tent, it started to bring back the memory. They had an external signing area. And I don't know if I was even, I may have been pretty new to conventions at that time too. So to that point, you have worked in anime for just decades. What keeps you excited about the genre and why do you think anime is so special to people? That's a great question. I think there's a number of reasons that it's special for people. I think it's the refreshing take of Eastern storytelling and that it leaves a lot to the intellect, that you are not given tidy endings or closure on many storylines or, or character arcs, that you're often really tasked to sort of think it forward, to really think of a way to make sense of what you've experienced. And I just think it speaks up to the audience at times, uh, more so than, than a lot of Western entertainment does. I think also that it's a fixture in our culture now. I, I think Hollywood didn't really know what to do with anime for many years and just sort of thought it was a fad. And I think they realized that it's here to stay now and it's had a huge, huge influence on our culture. I mean, seeing people with blue hair and purple eyes is not unusual anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, I think it, it provides freedom to sort of get your nerd freak on and whatever fashion that may be. And if I can be a part of helping people to be liberated uh, creatively, then I'm really among friendlies. Uh, That's something I seek in my own life. So I think there's that just touches on some of the appeal of anime. I'm still really excited to, one, have the artistry and experience that I have and to be able to pull from, from that bag of tricks, so to speak. Um, I'm also really challenged to still come up with new voices and slightly shift characters and explore them in a way where I, uh, first person, where you're in the shoes of the character and you're really uh, navigating a world through their experience. So that never grows old for an actor. The, The things that kind of, and I don't want to go too negative, but there are things, there are some trappings that are difficult for women because so often we're objectified in anime. So my challenge is I have no problem with um, empowerment sexually, especially uh, for women as they figure out who they are and get comfortable with their bodies. And, um, and the other important thing for me is that it's consensual whatever the, the uh, frolicking may involve. And um, to find a way, even if I have somewhat of a fan service character, to find a way to bring out something beyond that with her that's memorable and that advances the story. So really, I'm always thinking in terms of uh, the overarching themes 
And uh, I'm thinking now with my director brain, of course, but advancing the story with our characters. So I'm always looking at my piece of the puzzle, how little or large that may be, and how to stay true to the original work and the inspiration of the Japanese performance, yet enhancing it and localizing it for uh, an English-speaking world. So you kind of touched on this already, and you've logged nearly 600 acting credits. Just blew my mind when I looked that up. Thank um, you. <laughs> it's, it's quite a, a distinction. I can imagine how challenging that might be to make sure that your characters feel fresh and uniquely internal to yourself. But it also sounds like the anime and the background of the characters provides that nuance for you. Do you do anything else to contribute to that? I don't prepare for a role exactly the same way I would for a, a play or a, a, especially a play where you can really spend time with a character and really explore sort of any of the missing pieces of the puzzle and fill it in with your own research and, and your own instincts. For jumping into the studio and being ready to go, it, it's far better to arrive as an empty palette and let the production team layer up the colors and the textures with you and discover that process through their experience of having the time they've had already with story and picture. So I don't necessarily uh, prepare anything in advance. However, now we can research most titles and get some sense of the type of story it is, the pacing of the story. Is it going to be high energy? Is it going to be more languid and voiceover driven? Or is it going to have a lot of action? Those things are good to know, but I really like kind of the suspense of the unknown. I like to come in and just be ready to play, be rested, be hydrated, have my liquids. Um, I bring my own headphones now since we're just starting to get back to a fully open industry and recording uh, back in the studio again. Uh, but I don't really have any preconceived notions at all. Those are the hardest things to undo. That's why many years ago, we used to try handing out scripts in advance and letting people spend time with the picture and prepare their part. But what happens is inevitably you make decisions about your characters and you start uh, learning specific lines that have left an impression on you at a certain pace. And then to change that pacing to match picture is much harder to do than actually try it fresh with the inspiration and the team you've got there rather than having it all prepared and having to unlearn it. That's what I find the differences are with um, really just being available to the moment. Absolutely, for sure. That's such a cool answer. So on this podcast, we often talk about how our view of Cowboy Bebop and its characters have changed since the first time we watched it. And a lot of us, that first time was on Adult Swim or Toonami on Cartoon Network. You, however, have been in anime since before that sort of boom. So describe, if you would be so kind, that period. Like, how did the Adult Swim boom change the course of your work or your career? Oh, yes. The before times. Yes. <laughs> um, I got involved with that wonderful pro Hollywood core team of voice talent uh, in the 80s when I was the new kid and they were quite experienced and that was Cam Clark and Barbara Goodson and um, 
Ard White Chamberlain and Edie Merman, Laura Cody, uh, Steve Kramer, Tom Weiner, all of those guys were pretty experienced already and were a core group of actors that were coming in kind of as an ensemble to voice all the various international films that they would get at a specific studio called Intersound, um, which was in the heart of Hollywood, right on sun, on the Sunset Strip, across from an amazing Tower Records studio that had just walls of vinyl and where people were hanging. You'd see musicians and you know famous people there all the time. It was just a real hub of action at the time. And that energy plays into what goes on in, in a studio very much. Uh, we're sort of like a receptacle of vibration. So um, being involved with that wave of actors that were very experienced and yet still uh, an evolving art, we were working analog. We did not have a digital format. We used two-inch reel-to-reel tape. It was a remarkable thing because... You would go in to uh, read a specific line for your character, and the way that you would have to get it is by watching the time code in real time and just sort of try to lock on, you know, that 20 seconds and 10 frames. And it's very hard to see. It's super technical. It's like learning to play an instrument. We still, as voice artists, are very left and right brain oriented as far as technicality for fitting sync and then all the artistry and um, humor and everything else that that comes out of the moment. So most of the dubs at the time, we used to laugh and say, well, let's go again. This one's for the boys on the submarines or this is for the in-flight movie version or <laughs> we, we didn't know where our material was ending up. We had no idea. We never talked about distribution. We were just super happy to be getting titles that were international and the stuff coming out of Japan was heads and tails above anything else we were seeing. It was very different. Uh, very well, the first thing I ever saw was Robotech and it was, it was a drama. It was an adult serial and we could not believe that adults would go home every night to watch an animated drama at the same time every night, five days a week. And it just was like jaw dropping the concept to us. There was no, there really was no adult animation. It was really just all of us keeping the child inside of us alive and watching it longer into adulthood. Now it's completely acceptable to have totally adult themed animation with complete with F-bombs and everything else. And, and then also really edgy stuff. That's just so fun. That's clearly for college age and above. So once we finally did get into a digital format and people were taking note of some of the popularity of the shows we were doing and distribution sites began, Cartoon Network changed everything. They clearly were the first Hollywood, certainly the first people in suits we ever had contact with that got it and understood that uh, anime is a higher art of storytelling in many ways compared to the more primary versions of animation for children in the U.S. So um, once that happened, it opened the floodgates to work for us. And men, it was a huge wave of new talent started coming in. And there was a lot of sort of getting people up to speed quickly and uh, mentoring on some level, coaching as we were directing, um, all of that. But I had no idea until I was invited to a convention when they said, I said, why would they, why would anybody want me to go to an anim animation convention? I, 
I've done some anime, but I, well, I'd done a lot of anime, but I didn't realize it was a lot. And they said, well, so you could have contact with your fans. And I just said, whose fans? What, what do you mean? I, I didn't understand at all. So when I went to my first convention, I was checking in at the front desk and I said, yes, my room's under Wendy Lee. And I heard people screaming behind me and laughing and like shrieking and stuff. And I turn around and I'm like, I'm like, oh, and then I, I kind of took a double take and then heard somebody scream and another girl, girl go shh and I turned around and they all in unison said we're not worthy Miss Lee we're not worthy and I was like what is going on so everything changed at that point it was a, a much broader market it was uh, available to, available to people and they didn't have to buy every unit of what they wanted to watch and consume which was always a concern of mine and um it started a whole new wave of um level and influence of talent that anecdote is like visceral to me i can remember like people bowing and people glomping and i am glad we are evolved <laughs> past that. But wow, what a wonderful time. That's a very specific like set of years that I can remember very well. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so how did you hear about Faye Valentine? Was this something you auditioned for? Was this something that people picked out for you? I heard about Cowboy Bebop while I was directing Outlaw Star and at that time, there was a studio that we worked with, uh, Magnitude 8 and Zero Limit Productions, under the head of uh, Kevin Seymour, who was so critically instrumental uh, in as far as bringing anime to the States. He was the second uncle after Uncle Carl Masek, who really started the motion and was so instrumental and critical in my career. It's so strange that the two most influential producers that I worked with have both passed. It's it's just shocking when I think about it. And it's important to me to honor them whenever the chance arises. And um, at that time, Kevin Seymour and Yutaka, who were running uh, the products that were coming out of Zero Limit and Animes and Magnitude 8 was the studio, uh, they had a boon of shows that were all coming, were all being recorded at the same time. So at that time, they hired up, and all of the directresses they hired were women. So it was me, Leah Sargent, uh, Bridget Hoffman, and uh, Mary Elizabeth, and each of us had a show. And so we were always saying, well, what's your show like, and what show do you have? And so I was like, I love my show. It's like metaphysical, and they go into these crystal caves, and it's in space. It's Outlaw Star. And Mary's like, oh, I've got Cowboy Bebop. I'm like, oh. I guess that's going to be a Western anime. I hadn't felt, I've never seen a Western anime. And then uh, I think we were doing Mysterious Play for Shugi Yugi with uh, Bridget Hoffman. And Leah had another show. I can't remember which one that was, but I think I was on all of the shows. And um, when talent was still starting to build up. So I, I think often I was very fortunate that I had a certain flexibility as a voice type that I often got included in shows that were right in my age range. And it was kind of my, uh, I, I had a golden girl moment during those years. And uh, I'm certainly honored that I was ever tapped for any of that. And many other wonderful leading actresses have followed and had their moment where you're kind of a hot property and everybody's hiring you. And it feels so great. And it is so troubling when it all ends. 
<laughs> which never completely bottomed out for me because I picked up uh, so many other things. I love the variety of what I do. So I adapted scripts, casting, music, singing, writing lyrics, directing, all of that stuff. So I wrote a lot of uh, lyrics and adaptations for a lot of shows and sang theme songs on many shows. Um, so all I knew is that I would be scheduled to go in on Cowboy Bebop. And that was the first time I saw Faye. I did not audition. And in our Bebop panel that we just had with Color World, it came up that none of us did. We were what we would call a paper cast. So you kind of put your dream cast together on paper and submit it to the production company or the company already gave the animation studio permission to cast whom they would like to. It wasn't until I came into the studio and I went, I was all excited. And I think, I think Mary had already worked on Outlaw Star for me and I was getting to come in and work with her. And I was all prepared to just go on into the studio. And she's like, no, hold on, come out, out here and sit in the booth with me. Let's just watch it first. I'm like, well, watch it? <laughs> You're going to pay me a half hour watch a show? She's like, no, we'll just watch a, a scene or two so you can get a sense of uh, the timing of the show, like everything I was discussing earlier, the sort of breadth of the show. And that's when I saw these amazing spacescapes and the bebop and all that music that was like another character in the show was just astounding. And when I saw Faye, I just thought, I'm kind of getting chills. I just thought, I know this girl. I just, I, I don't know how but I know that I can slip into her shoes and put her into a living realm. And um, as soon as I started rehearsing and practicing with the voice, I just quickly found I'm not going to lean on the Japanese performance very much. I'm using it as reference, but I'm really going to create this out of whole cloth and really do sort of the Americanized character that I always wished there had been an opportunity for in other titles. So that was when I first got introduced to her and fell in love. It sounds like you pulled a lot from your own experience, too, to contribute to the wholeness of Faye's personality. Did you have to overcome any kind of challenges to nail some of her performances or, or parts of certain episodes? Or was there anything that stuck out as memorable to you as you recorded it? Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of moments that were very mem memorable and easy to sort of absorb because the pacing was slow. We didn't have to rush, rush, rush to make hourly goals. It was more about really make the show beautiful, do your thing with it. And um, I think what I got from Faye in the beginning is that she might be broken. There might be something there that makes her accessible to me and uh, fallible and uh, not perfection. Even though she was so confident and so um, cunning and, and you know calculating at times, I just knew that there was, I didn't, I had no idea it would be the deep back rich story we get from Speak Like a Child. That blew my mind. I had no idea that was coming. And we can talk about that some more. But um, I did think that, you know, I was very involved in the music scene at the time. I got into voiceover and post-production because I was hanging out with a lot of very well-known musical acts and musicians. And my friends were all very well-known musicians and signed artists. And I would often join them in different places around the world to see their shows. And 
one of my best friends was a sound engineer for Herbie Hancock, the Beach Boys, Jethro Tull. He worked with Frank Zappa, all these people. And when he was in between tours, he worked at Intersound engineering recording sessions. And that's how I got into the studio. So my background of knowing what the rock world was like from behind the scenes with a VIP pass is what I saw in Faye and what I was feeling in the show. And it's like, I knew that. I know those girls firsthand. And I know how competitive they are and how um, they will push any, they will, they will move anyone aside to get where they're going. And it just was so familiar to me that I decided I was going to navigate her as one of those girls the way I chose to take her story. But at the same time, always honoring everything about the original intent of the story. What else do you as a human person have in common with Faye? And maybe in what ways are you for sure different? I can relate a lot to what made Faye as far as she actually came from a wealthy family, but she knew what it was like to be broke. That's not unlike my past. Um, she clearly had strong figures in her life she was rebelling from, rebelling against. And I always had the rebel spirit, but I didn't need to experience it like the typical teenager. I was more, I was more worldly and mature beyond my years at such a young age from the hardships of childhood and um, having alcoholism in my parents and in, in my family and um, navigating to wholeness and, and getting into the 12 step program with my mom and um, all that I gleaned from that as a little kid kind of sleeping on her lap during meetings and understanding self-improvement and the journey of you're not just who you were born into. You have a decision of where, what you will do with that lifetime, your knowledge, your experiences, and um, will they, will you overcome them? Will you ascend with those things or will you be victimized by those things? And I could tell that uh, Faye and I shared some of that, even though she plays it very hoity at times and comes across very callous at times. I know that she's covering a lot of pain and uh, vulnerability. And anyone that has strong bravado like that usually is overcompensating. So it's just easy to identify that stuff. Yet at the same time, she gave me the liberation to be physically confident and to act out um, more in a sensual way than I ever would feel the freedom to do as a young American woman. Um, it was always important to me to be respect, respectable, uh, classy, um, you know, uh, dependable, all these kind of good girl traits that are put on women, the constructs of being a people pleaser, all of that. They didn't have any of that. She made a choice to shed that shit. <laughs> and it was just liberating to be her and to be influenced by that. And um, I always wanted to be sure that we weren't playing her down too much and uh, reducing her to just being objectified. I think that she was in control of that, that she used her uh, sensuality and great figure and all that um, one, because I think she really loved being a woman, and I really love everything about the feminine experience. Um, yet at the same time, she could be hardcore and fight and shoot and rough and tumble and, you know, and then rock a gorgeous evening gown and then, you know, throw her both feet up on the table and be spread eagle. You know, she just has a range 
that um, was I, easy to identify with for me. So without digging into the final episodes of the show, we do find that Faye's kind of at the end of her journey with the bebop. And in your opinion, does she ascend or is she victimized by the ending that we're left with? Where do you think she calls home after the bebop and where does the trajectory of her life take her? Yeah, I've thought about that uh, a few different times and I always sort of change the channel because (laughs) I'm not ready to finalize her story. I just feel like we've seen so many anime where everything blew up and then you think that's the end and they walk out the storm cloud on the other, the fireball and they're fine. So why isn't that happening with Spike? I'm not sure, but I think that there would be no escaping the true loss and heartache that she would also be imprinted with uh, after we leave our story. And I think it would forever be part of her reputation. I think she would be always be having to be accountable for uh, the antics of bounty hunting and all that they went through. There's a good chance that she would cut ties and start a whole new beginning. I have thought, I have considered that. I do think that at some point she would go into the next phase of adulthood, which would have very little do, to do with physical beauty. I just think that at some point she would be liberated from that stuff and end up at the top of given syndicate, given constructs, school, business, whatever it was. I do feel like ultimately she'd find her way and that she's she's a hustler, she's a wheeler dealer. But of course, I was always hoping, you know, very much for her to truly find her match and, and her partner and that she would accept love. Uh, on a deeper level than she had ever really uh, allowed herself before. You mentioned accepting love and changing her role in the lives of others. And in recent episodes of this podcast, we've run at this a couple of times. We've discussed, does Faye Valentine keep her name, for example? Uh, I, as a young person, was a Spike and Faye shipper. And so I don't know if I feel that way anymore. We've, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But I'm curious from your perspective, how does Faye feel about the other members of the Bebop? Um, she puts a lot of walls up. She puts up a lot of emotional armor. But maybe on the inside, what do you think she thinks of her comrades? Well, she was in love with Spike, right? <laughs> I said it. <laughs> Dang, Lauren. Yes, 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 yes. I'm of the sibling camp when it comes to Spike and Faye relationship, but Lauren has definitely put money on this, I'm sure, somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a rich woman. I honestly was shocked that they did not explore the obvious. And gosh, good on them, because that takes a lot of discipline. There's such a chance of them coming together at any moment. But I do think it's like that relationship you have with a guy that you've you've loved and known and been through ups and downs with that you've never crossed the line with and complicate with romance. I do think that there's an intellectual um, meeting of the minds between Spike and Faye. And that's why the banter is so good because there's there's they know each other's references for humor and sarcasm and they understand each other's 
hearts and uh, motivations and desires. I think the two of them are in the strongest potential position to hurt each other. And I think there was a, a lot of guarding that, that uh, the deepest digs came from Spike and they hurt like hell at times. And, you know, she would hit back hard when that was the case. Um, I feel like it's that thing where it, the love opportunity didn't quite have the moment and they weren't about to just hook up and then have to fly together. So, you know, it's that they weren't going to do that, that really the money mattered more than that <laughs> and the journey. Um, but what an amazing thing that that never crossed over. I mean, to me, that's a lot of discipline. They really kind of have a physical alignment. You could see them as a couple. And that's, that's what the audience is forever being teased with. So I just feel like that opportunity was unrequited, that they didn't have that. So it became something else. I agree with you, though, that as much as I shipped it as a younger woman, I think it's the right story to not do it. I think Spike's obsession with Julia would never allow it. And it's just so easy to make a story about a boy meets girl heteronormative romance. I'm glad we got something else. Well, in a way, it would almost objectify her more. It, it would make it like, again, that she's reduced to just a female role. And really what we're seeing with Ed and Faye are shifting and shuffling of female roles. And uh, boy, wasn't that ahead of its time. Now that we're discussing it, I have to give a shout out to the agency this show wrote for women during its time. It really does highlight Faye's sense of power and capability more so that they didn't go there with shipping Spike and Faye. Yeah. I, I mean, I was actually, I forgot this, but I remember thinking I came in late to the series. I, I don't think it's like episode six or something. I can't remember, but uh, Faye doesn't start in the beginning. And when she does appear, she's got a lot of screen time, but she doesn't say a lot. A lot of what she does is un understated. Um, but I remember thinking, damn, are they going to like give the two girls on the ship like equal screen time? Like this is, there really are, she's almost a lead. Like it's really presented as Spike and uh, Jet's story from the get-go. But um, once Faye enters and Ed, you know, they, they really share some equity there. And that's unusual. At, at that time, it was kind of unheard of. Yeah. Speaking of female characters, have you read or seen any of the Cowboy Bebop manga? Or were you told about any of those characters? Because Faye actually has a mentor named Linda in those books who like teaches her cards and to hustle men. And I was just wonder if that was a part of your experience at all or if that just happened on the sidelines. I've never heard that. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so I need to totally explore Linda. Okay, because now I'm seeing like a madam or something, like she's just this intense woman. Okay, um, no, the only... The only, in fact, I didn't even know the manga covered more story. I didn't know there was more story available. Yeah, we did. We did a whole episode on the podcast of just the manga because there were so many interesting little stories that filled in some blanks. It's, we love her. We're big fans of her in this house. What's her model like? What does she look like? Like a, a blonde mom. She's not that like 
interesting looking. She's not like particularly sultry. She's not particularly like she just is like a a blonde like corporate woman. She's she's a she's a corporate consultant at the beginning of the manga, and um, you find out that she's like grifting the company she works for also, and that's why she gets a bounty on her head. <laughs> it's such a great vignette, and I wish more fans knew about it. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, I'm exploring that. Thank you. That's kind of a gift. I didn't, it make it, a lot of things are clicking for me because it's clearly pointers that she's been given by somebody with experience. So it just makes perfect sense. They are truly like a Thelma and Louise item. I was going to say it. And I thought, yeah, well, let's state that obvious. It seems like it. So I think I, I may already know the answer to this, but do you think Faye is a positive role model? We were going through sort of your your credits and I was like, oh my gosh, Kione from Tenshi Muyo and Queen Serenity. Do you think Faye belongs on the list of people young women should look up to? I do be for sheer empowerment. I mean, she's she's a woman that she's almost overconfident. She's so confident. Um, but it's because it's qualified. She I do think so. I think, you know, hey, she can't help. She was drawn that way. She was drawn that way. <laughs> you know, um, when you see her changing costumes, there's still a gleam in her eyes of, you know, of uh, mischief, but she can wear heels. She can wear a gown. She can put her hair up and wear beautiful jewelry. Like she's, again, little signs that she's from money. Um, but I think that even if she would hustle you as a woman, if you were to engage her, it's still commendable that she's taken her life and done what she has with it and is on a trajectory, good or bad. It is motion. She is not a stagnant character. And I do think that um, that's funny. Whenever I, I think of characters that people will know, the popular characters, I always think of her in a very positive way. I rarely think, well, when I get nervous is when I see the cosplay, because that is some gravity-defying costumery. (laughs) No, no, I think it's, uh, I love seeing uh, cosplay of any of our characters and how women absorb some of her confidence when they slip into her outfit. We are curious if you perhaps own any Faye memorabilia or other characters you voiced as, say, collectibles or statuettes, for example? Yes, you see this little green case over here? <laughs> it has a lot. But my my newest, like I have, I keep the DVDs around because oh. work, so I always keep the one with Faye out and displayed. And um, I have a Funko Faye Faye over here. And uh, I've got the whole Bebop series um, on my bottom shelf. I've got a really good model of Faye back here. Should I show you? I don't know how well you can see her. But th- this is one of the first models that I got and spent money on. Um, oh, still in the box and everything. Right? And she's got, you know, she's got the funky spread eagle uh, stance. or She's sitting like that. But the face, the little expression of confidence. And how they did her yellow costume in gold, like shiny uh, 14 karat gold. So yes, I collect all things, uh, many things, Bebop. I 
have to tell you this story. I had the strangest experience this year. I found some great Bebop merch um, online on, at Hot Topic. So I got some really good t-shirts and I decided to get some longer ones. You could use them as 90s. So I have this cute pink t-shirt that's oversized and it's got a picture of Faye and Spike on the front. And I think she's like holding out her suspender or something or has something in her teeth to the side. And then the back, it's the same shot, the backside of them. So I would put it on at night and actually blush. I'm like, I'm gonna, can I sleep in Faye and Spike? I don't know if they should be in bed together and on me. I'm like, oh, you're, you're between them. My goodness. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like had to put it away for a little while. <laughs> but yeah, I got a, I got a hoodie and I've got some cute t-shirts and it's, it's actually really cute because my husband is the one who started wearing Bebop t-shirts first and he likes the strategy of it. <laughs> he likes to uh, actually wear them and, and wait for somebody to say something. And so once in a while, the fan's like, oh, you like me, Bob? He's like, yeah. He's like, it's a great show. I really like it. <laughs> I really like it. And then he always waits. He's like, uh, well, who do you like in the cast? He goes, well, actually, I sleep with Faye. <laughs> now now I'm blushing. I'm losing it. <laughs> so saucy it's so cute how he'll you know just wait you do attend a lot of conventions and you had just attended color world virtually how has the pandemic itself changed the nature of your convention attendance and what would you like to see going forward post-pandemic in regards to fan appearances and things like that oh wow those are really important things to consider Conventions are starting up again. I've talked to a handful of people who have attended, who've been flying and, and interacting with the fans. And I've had a lot of questions for them because my concern is I've always felt like there is too much accessibility with us as cast members. And we're playing a dangerous numbers game by being that uh, accessible where somebody could just grab you, touch you, you know, or worse at any moment. And I don't want to put shade on this, but it worries me. I think I'm always thinking about people's welfare a little more than they are Be, from my perspective. Um, I think the more mature actors do consider this because we remember a time when people couldn't just, can I have a hug? Can I put my arm around you? Can I? So I started about the last two years of conventions. I stopped physically touching my fans, which was hard for me because I'm a hugger and I like to shake hands and look people directly in the eye, but I just had to make a little bit of professional distance. And I hope that fans can understand this is very important for us health-wise and otherwise. I'm very concerned about the ridiculous nature of your health be being politicized. So because that is the nature of the ridiculous political stance in our country right now, I can't trust, none of us can trust that everybody's been vaccinated. And I understand that there's varying reasons for not, I'm a needle phobe, so I didn't line up first, but I am vaxxed. And um, I did make that decision consciously so I could get back out into the world. So honestly, I think we really need to respect and create and provide and sustain 
uh, distance, physical distance, so we can still interact on a regular basis. So that matters a lot to me. The other thing I'm concerned about cons is we've had some close calls with some weird things that have happened that are dangerous. And a lot of people are cosplaying with real weapons. And coming into a very crowded hall with huge ninja swords and, and all kinds of you know armor and, and, and whatnot, that really concerns me. And I think we're going to have to take that into consideration in the future. We need to get back to costuming where it's nothing's dangerous, no weapons, any of that. And, you know, I just think because our country is so flooded with guns, we need more security. I, I don't feel like I have handlers who help me at every convention that are magical. They're so good at their jobs. They're great. But true, true security is something that I think we have to up. And it's just a loss of innocence, in, you know, after COVID, unfortunately, I think that's part of it. And I think that my experience with Color World was really eye-opening because what a brilliant way to bring people together from all over the country and the world to have quality one-on-one -on -one time hanging out together. I'd never even thought of such a, such a uh, rewarding experience mutually for both, both the fan and the person who's spending time with you because it then becomes all about how can I make this memorable and satisfying for you? And while we're at it, can I ask you some questions? You know, we, you can tell me about how your year has been and how it's changed under COVID and that, you know, we're all tasked with minding our mental health and not getting too isolated from each other. And that's a way to bring us all together again. Uh, so speaking of the future, I suppose, uh, I think we'd be remiss to not bring up the upcoming Netflix adaptation of Cowboy Bebop. One of the main reasons we started this show was knowing that it was on the horizon and we wanted as fans to revisit the classic first. Just in general, what are your opinions on that coming out? Do you have any hopes and dreams for what it might be like? Well, you went right to my heart. Hopes and dreams, cameo on the show, just one cantina scene will satisfy all of us. Uh, under five, we don't even need any dialogue. It's something that we were really hoping to uh, actualize. And then the set, they had an accident on set with John, her knee, and then uh, a shutdown. So yes, in some way to be involved with the the, sh the series and in any little way at all would make all the difference for us. And I think all of our listeners would enjoy it too. And it would really sort of link us all full circle back into the current production. I'm hoping the very best for it. Boy, do they have a rich source of storytelling to pull from. Um, if, uh, you know, my concern has always been turning it into an action series if they can focus on the breadth and the time that's spent in space, with space, observing and not just ramming action into every scene, I think that it could be a really magical show. I sure hope so. I don't know how much anime we've seen brought to live action that has succeeded yet. So, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if Bebop was the one that kind of turned the corner for everyone and we give it a chance and it could be all new stories. I mean, maybe we'll, we'll get into a whole new level of, of finding out more about our characters. Maybe they'll bring in Linda. <laughs> <laughs> well, they brought in Yoko Kano. So yay. We're very happy about that. 
This has been a really fun question to ask our voice actor guests who uh, we're just so honored that we've had so many on this podcast with so many credits under your belt. Is there a character you can remember playing that maybe didn't reach the mainstream popularity of Faye, like didn't really catch on with fans, but you just love, like it's just sort of a secret favorite of yours? I wish that I had more screen time with uh, Queen Serenity. She doesn't have very many scenes and I just love the girl power and camaraderie and all the beautiful crystal metaphysical references. It's just, just the, I now I understand why everybody flipped out about Sailor Moon and its day. I missed the boat on that one until I got to be part of the cast. You know, I, I've mentioned this one over the weekend too, but in Vampire Hunter D, I played this amazing gothic character, Charlotte, who's just stunning and her Victorian gown and her long trendles of curls. And she just had such a tragic beauty to her and her love story of being in love with a vampire and being unable to be together forever. And oh, just so much I could say about that. I love that character. So I would have liked to see more with her. Perfect Blue just came up and I play the villainous in that, which is so much like the Selena story. It just blows my mind. And uh, I recently just watched the Selena series on Netflix and I kept thinking the whole time how Rumi was so much like her manager, the, the bad guy. Is there anything you guys think of that we had like a secondary character that didn't quite get the love of mine? I would say Weta from Hare and Goo, but that's a pretty <laughs> obscure title for most anime fans even. I don't know if you guys remember, but I was talking about how Weta was a beer drinking, neglecting mother and how much I loved her. And that she was at first, I thought, oh God, this, this chick is a case, but she's a loving person. She's just a fuck up. She's just, she's just not someone like it. She's an island style girl. And I spent a lot of time in the music business in Jamaica and on the reggae scene. And, you know, it's just really island style chill. I, I got that. Weta would would go somewhere. She wouldn't end up just throwing her life away, drinking and neglecting her baby. She loves her boy, but it's just not very responsible. God, I had a cool character on Vandred. It's funny because uh, Mary Elizabeth always said that we played the opposite characters. I played Bosom, the big, deep chested, big voice, big, uh, uh, deep voice, big chest woman. And she played the little, the one that had the falsetto. So that was fun. We kind of switched roles on that, not by our choice. Um, I lo love Hina. I love Kaolusu. And I thought Kaolusu was so different from all the other characters I played. So she was a joy. My Digimon characters did well. I wish TK, I wish that I could have been more than just TK as a little boy. Because he was great and his brother Matt's the best. But when I grew up, that's when Yuri Lowenthal took my part. I love TK. TK. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I've had some uh, game characters that I've felt that way about. Yeah, I put Shenghua from Soul Calibur in my notes because that was my favorite character back when I was first learning what fighting games even were. And like, how could you win at them? How could you ever be any good at something like that? Shenghua helped me get there. She's another tragic sort of love uh, immersed character that but was still so elegant and beautiful. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed, I got to play the sisters and that was really amazing on, um, on that series in general. 
Before we say goodbye, is there anything you would like to promote today, tell your fans about? I know you just did Color World. Is there anywhere else you would like people to look for more Wendy Lee? Well, currently I am, I have two shows on Funimation that I'm directing, uh, Vivi Florite I Song, and also Cells at Work Code Black. And uh, people uh, also, I have a very exciting release of the Near uh, franchise games that finally came out after all we've had to keep it under wraps for so long. So I'm hearing all kinds of wonderful things about that. And uh, I, I love getting your feedback on that. It'll be very interesting for you to figure out who I play in that. And feel free, please, to stay in touch with me on Twitter, Wendy Lee VO. And I also have Facebook, Wendy Lee Dash Artist. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your heart. You have just been such a pleasure to talk to. And uh, we look forward to maybe hanging out with you at least via email once the Netflix show comes out, because we'd love to talk about it with you. I am looking forward to your opinions about that. And thank you for honoring Bebop and keeping the love alive. And it's been so nice hanging out with you guys and uh, another wonderful Chick Squad. <laughs> thank you. It's been such a blast. It is. Girl Power Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. See you, space cowboys and girls. And to all of you, space cow people. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Bebop Beat. Next time, we'll be talking to the experts about the space program on wild horses. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at BebopBeat. Our email address is BebopBeatPodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. My life is so charmed. My life is so charmed that Faye Valentine is recommending me cheeses. (laughs) Okay.